All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is where we'll be in one of my favorite passages. Uh, Did everyone have a good Christmas? Okay, good, yeah. Um, There's lots of things I love about Christmas. Uh, One of my favorite parts of Christmas is just watching people receive a gift. Um, And so if you give a gift, it's just real interesting, like especially if you... Like sometimes you know what someone wants or you hear through someone else. And so you know, I mean, this is exactly what they wanted. They're going to love this. But sometimes you go out on a limb, right? And you buy a shirt or you buy something. You don't know if they're going to like it. And that moment when they open up the gift, it's a lot like asking someone on a first date. Um, there's like that three-second awkward period where you're like, are they going to like this? Are they going to like this? And, and I have a theory that everyone who opens a gift falls into one of three categories. You have first the person who is always pleased, like always happy. And so whether they really enjoyed it or whether they didn't really enjoy it, on their face it's just like, oh yes, this is the greatest thing ever. My brother is one of these people. Uh, He's 10 years old and he, I mean, gets socks and he'll grab the floor and be like, this is exactly what I wanted for Christmas. Um, And and so you have the person who's always happy, who, who always enjoys the present. Then you have the person who for whatever reason their kind of strategy is to always look disappointed. Uh, and so they're just never really impressed. They get a car and be like, oh, well, this is a nice, that's a nice car. I, I appreciate that. Um, and then you have the third category, which is the, the scariest category. And that's the person who's honest. <laughs> that's the person who it shows on their face exactly what they think about that present. And so as much as I try not to be, that's where I fall in. I'm just not good at, at hiding things on my face. And so I open up the gift and if it sucks... Oh, great. It sucks. I could have, okay, yeah, thank you for the socks. And if it's a car, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. This is a car. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you saw this. Uh, it was real, it blew up over this past week. There's this video on YouTube and on the internet of this kid getting books for Christmas. Anybody see this? No? Okay, you can look it up. It's this little two-year-old boy, two- or three-year-old boy, uh, in his first, like, real Christmas. And he gets books, and he had just got all these toys and he gets really angry, and he's like, books for Christmas? No, you don't get, books aren't toys, I hate books. Uh, and he's just interrupting. <laughs> so he got, like, invited on Good Morning America, like, it was this big deal. Um, I hadn't laughed so hard on a video in a long time, and, and so I was watching that, and I started looking at other, there's a lot of videos of people uh, reacting to certain gifts on Christmas. There's one of a, like, a 12-year-old boy who opened up a Wii for Christmas, and apparently he had been told that they weren't getting a Wii for Christmas, and he starts... Like, I kid you not, bawling, like hyperventilating, crying, uh, to the point where he starts throwing up. Like, he's that excited about getting a Wii. But I'm just laughing. I, I think it's hilarious. I, I love just the different reactions. You get a gift, and then just that feeling, and just, I mean, it's, sometimes it's hard to hide your emotions. If you don't have that preconceived strategy of, I'm going to be happier, I'm not going to be impressed, sometimes it, you're just honest, and you just say, this is how I feel, this is what this gift um, does inside of me in my heart. Uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, tells the Christmas story. Tells the story of Christ being born to us as a story of God giving us a gift. So the angel of the Lord comes and he says, to all people, good news has arrived. Good news of a child that's born. That's this gift that's come to all of us. Well, this morning I, I want to look at the implications of that gift. So Christ comes, and we talked about this on Christmas Eve, the incarnation, or God enfleshed among us, this baby boy, who the angels say is the king of the entire world, the savior that's been promised to God's people. He comes. We're, we're given this gift. And then what does it mean to us? How should we react on Christmas morning when we open up this gift? What should it create in our lives? 
That's what I want to look at in John chapter 1. The Gospel of John gives us a cosmic and an eternal viewpoint of the Christmas story. And it's so interesting to me because of that. And I want to look at John's reaction to the gift of Christmas this morning. And so we'll pick it up in verse 1 and we'll read the first five verses. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. It's a beautiful passage with so much in it. I want to show you just three things. First, he starts out here with this phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning. Does this sound familiar to you? Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. He's verbatim retelling the Genesis story here in these first two words. So in the Hebrew Old Testament, if you flip to Genesis 1-1, it will start out, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now it had been translated into the Greek in what we call the Septuagint. And it said this, N-R-K. N-R-K in the Greek. John and his readers, his audience, would have read this. They would have been familiar with this story. John starts his gospel off with these same two words, N-R-K. It seems that he's retelling the creation story. He's echoing Genesis 1 and 2. So if you remember back in Genesis 1 and 2, God speaks and he creates everything out of nothing. And he creates and he creates and he creates for seven days. On the seventh day he rests. He calls it holy, the Sabbath. Then in Genesis chapter 2, he breathes life into mankind and commissions them. Go out into the world. Go cultivate. Go have dominion over what I have created. Now a lot of people have said that this parallel of Genesis 1 and 2 goes further than just these first three words. Some have said that the whole Gospel of John seems to parallel the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. And so the Gospel of John, his story that he tells, is divided up into seven pieces. Uh, And there are these seven signs that Jesus performs. These seven miracles that happen to reveal who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world. And so if you remember the first one, is at a wedding? He turns water into wine? I grew up Baptist, but that's in there. The last sign, the seventh sign, is he raises Lazarus from the death, from dead. This is his buddy. He shows up to the funeral and says, I don't, I don't much like funerals. Get up. And then we see here, if you flip, flip to John 20, I want to show you this. John chapter 20 is full of allusions to Genesis chapter 2. Um, in John 20... It starts off in verse 1 by saying this. Now on the first day of the week. So John's giving us a timeline here. A lot have said that these seven signs correspond to the seven days of creation. You have Jesus working in seven distinct periods. And then on the first day of the week, after the creation week. And John, he really wants us to notice when the resurrection is happening. So look in verse, I think it's 19, yeah. 2019, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. John's going, in case you missed it, notice that Jesus is resurrected on the first day of the week. I think what he's doing here is saying a new age has begun. With Jesus' resurrection, a new era has been entered into. One of new creation. One of resurrection. If you also notice, uh, look here in verse... 
Where is it? Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In Genesis 2, 7, God breathes on Adam and Eve and commissions them to go into the world. It's again the same word in the Greek that was in the Septuagint. So John here, in the beginning was the word. He seems to be retelling the creation story. He seems to be echoing Genesis 1 and 2. And what's shocking about it is who's at the center of his retelling. <coughs> who's at the center? It's, it's what he calls the Word. Ha-lagas. In the beginning was the Word. This was an early Christian title for Jesus. And so in these first five verses, he doesn't name Jesus explicitly. Later on here, uh, in chapter 1, he'll name him in verse 17. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He says, in the beginning, and so everyone would have been expecting, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But instead, we get, in the beginning, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. This was a, a, a title that came from both Greek background and Jewish background. And so, uh, in, in, in Israel, there was this rich tradition of the Devar of God, the Word of God. And so, Psalm 39 tells, or Psalm 33, 6, excuse me, says that the Word of God, the Devar of God, created the heavens and the earth. So that the, this Word of God, the spoken Word of God, it has power, it creates. And the Jews had this rich tradition of the Word of God creating. So when John says, the Word for Jesus, he's drawing on that imagery, he's drawing on that tradition. And also the Greeks had this philosophy of the Lagos, the Word. And it was to them... To, to Greek philosophers, kind of the organizing principle of the entire world. It was kind of, in a sense, the, the revelation of the divine to the natural. It, it showed us how to live. It showed us how things were supposed to work. One scholar said it was almost like the um, in-between of the divine and the natural. It, it was revealing. It, it revealed what life was supposed to look like. And I think the early Christians picked up on both these traditions when they called Jesus... The Word. Ha-lagas. He is the Creator. He's the Revealer. And it was what this Word did and who He was that was so important. If you look in verse 14 here, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. This Word, there was no other than this Jewish prophet who had walked around gathering followers, preaching the kingdom of God, at one time calling John, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And now this truth to John changes everything. I mean, this truth has him questioning everything, has him reevaluating everything. And so if you look at, in verse 1 here, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The Word was separate and had this close relationship with God, but the Word was also God. The Word was God. And so he, he looks at how Jesus is primary in the entire universe, how He's supreme, how He reigns, how He was there in the beginning, and He comes to this conclusion, the Word was God. He redefines God in light of the Incarnation. You see, the truth of the Incarnation, I've said this here before, is not so much so, so the, the truth that God enfleshed among us. The truth that He moved into our neighborhood, that He lived right in front of us, doesn't mean so much that Jesus is God-like. 
as much as it means that God is Jesus-like. As much as it means that if you want to see God, now if you want to see who He is, how He reacts to certain things, what He would say about certain things, you have to look no further than His Son. The Word enfleshed in front of us. John redefines who God is around the Word, around the life of Jesus. And this radically changes how we understand God. If you look in verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. He dwelt among us. We saw His glory. So John believed that when they walked with Jesus, when they heard Him talk, when they saw Him do ministry, they were watching God in human form. God in the flesh. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's also these seven I am statements from Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, the life. He says, before Abraham was, I am. This is echoing God's name in the Old Testament. I am who I am, Yahweh. Jesus is saying, it's me. When you see me doing these things, you're seeing God. When you see me saying these things, you're seeing God saying these things. Which adds, I think, just a whole lot of emphasis to the life of Jesus. Recorded for us in the Gospels. It's not just the credits before the resurrection, right? A lot of people read the Gospels like that. I mean, they're interesting, but they're not that important. What's important is that he died and raised again. But John's saying, no, no, no. It's important because we saw God among us. We saw him among us. So in John 8, in one of my favorite stories in the scriptures, this young girl is brought before Jesus, caught in adultery. And the law says she should be killed. They throw her down in front of Jesus and say, what do we do? They're trying to trap him. He forgives her. He says, real famously, he has not sinned, throw the first stone. And they walk away. Jesus picks her up, says, you're forgiven, go, go sin no more. And so I read that story and I'm, I'm thinking, if it's true, if it's true that the word was God, then that means at, at our darkest moment, I mean at our very lowest moment, the heart of God is not condemnation for you. It's forgiveness. It's gentleness. It's mercy. At your lowest, at your darkest, this little girl had reached the end. And Jesus picks her up and John says, you're seeing God work here. You're seeing his heart. When you not want to know what God thinks about sin, when you want to know what God thinks about hypocrites, when you want to know what God would do if he were here in the flesh, John says, we've seen it. We've experienced it. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And when God is revealed to us through Jesus, you and I respond like a child on Christmas, Christmas with worship. With worship. When you and I realize that on the cross, as we see this man dying, we're seeing God giving himself for us. We respond with worship. We open up that gift and we say, you are worthy. We'll follow you. We'll give you everything that we've got. And so we write songs. We write poems. And we, we read the scriptures. We sing songs. And we talk to each other. We pray. And we praise Him because He has come. He has revealed. And He has saved. John also says this. If you look, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was nothing made that 
was made. And then look in verse 4 here. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the light, life was the light of men. Now to John, this word life here um, means this real deep, rich, full life. This life is, it was meant to be lived. And so in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I've come so that they may have life, that my people would have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full, have it to the completion, the perfection. Throughout the Gospel of John, there seems to be this difference between breathing and being alive. So there's one way where we're, we're breathing and we're operating and we're moving, but we're not living in the depth of life God had created for us. And John's saying, in Him was life. And that life was the light of men. It, it shone on us. It enlightened us. If you look in um, later on in, in chapter 1, verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. We have seen His glory. Glory that comes before. Glory that comes from the Father. The glory of, of grace and of truth. Now there's something interesting. If, if God became man and lived among us, then you and I have a great seat to watch what it means to be a human. Like if the creator of humanity becomes a human then in his life, we've got a pretty good idea of what he wants from us. And so in Genesis 1, we're called, humanity is called the image of God, image bearers of God. That's what the definition of humanity for the scriptures. And later on, they would call Jesus the true image of God. We saw what a human was in him. We saw with his life, what life actually was, the deep, rich, perfect life. We saw what it meant to love God. We saw what it meant to love others. We saw what it meant to forgive the people around us. What it meant to work for justice. To be a voice for righteousness. And so when we, we open up this gift and we see that, that in Christ, in Jesus, dwelt among us, we find life. We respond with obedience. We respond by saying, in Him was life. And we'll follow after that life. I've said here often, I, I love the picture of the story in the Gospels where Jesus asks his disciples, are they going to leave him? And they say, where else would we go? You have the words of life. I love that picture for you and I. I mean, where else would we go? Where, where are we going to go to try to find life? It's in him and him alone. All throughout the scriptures, when he's given us command, I've said this for the last two years, when, when we see a command in scripture, it's not God trying to rob us of life. Trying to rob us of joy. It's Him trying to lead us into life. The Ten Commandments were not given to the Israelites as these ten arbitrary rules so God could constantly punish them. This was God saying, look, you've fallen, and this is how life should work. It works better when you don't kill each other. You'll be a lot happier when you're not lying to each other and taking each other's wives. All throughout the Scriptures... God tells us to love our wives, husbands, like Christ loves the church. Not so that you're miserable all the time. Because that's where life is found. Jesus says, forgive those who have wronged you. Not so that you would be some weak, second-class person. But so you would be free. Or you would live in the depth of life as He has laid it out for you. So we respond with obedience. When we see in front of us, Visible to us, manifested to us, what life is. 
the incarnation, this story of new creation to John, it's a story that redefines God. It's a story that redefines humanity. And then look in verse 5 here. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is saying salvation, redemption, is now centered on Jesus. On this word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's saying this light has come and it's pushed back the darkness. The the darkness has not won against it. In fact, the light has won. And so John doesn't tell us how this darkness got into creation. But somehow the word created all things and this darkness creeped in. This thing that was not life. Death, sin, evil creeped in. But the light came to us. The light didn't shy back. It came to us and shone. And like light does, it pushes back the darkness. And John says the light has come and the darkness has not snuffed it out. The darkness has not overcome it if you look in verse 12 here in chapter 1 to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god verse 16 from his fullness we have received grace upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus the messiah Jesus Christ. He says, in Christ, this light, this life coming to us, let's overcome the darkness, that a victory has been won. You see, the heart of the gospel is that what Christ has accomplished on the cross and with his resurrection is a dramatic victory over the things that enslave us. That death, sin, evil, those things have been defeated on the cross. And that you and I, through faith, by believing, now have the ability to share in that victory, to become children of God, to receive, as John says, grace upon grace. John says, just saying we've, we've gotten grace isn't enough. We, we've gotten grace, and then we've gotten grace, and then we've gotten grace. Martin Luther, on this verse, would say that you and I individually could get more grace than we could ever need. And Christ would still be an endless source. His grace is infinite. You and I, we share in the victory. And so we open up this gift of light in the darkness. Of a life that has come and redeemed us. Of a sacrifice for us. And we respond with faith. We respond by believing. We respond by standing in the death, by standing in the love of Christ. And by saying, this is where I will live. You see, faith at at its core is just this. It's this raw, gritty trust that you are one with Christ. That just as he died and was raised again, so you will be raised. That on the cross, he died for your sins, that you're not going to pay for them. Romans 8, in him... There's no condemnation. That's what faith is. Saying despite what it looks like, despite the sin that still haunts me, I am His and I am free. I am loved. I'm forgiven. In Him, the light has come and the darkness has not overcome it. We share in that victory. We live in that victory. 
We sing in that victory. Christmas morning is this, this celebration. And you know, maybe, maybe we've distorted it a little bit. Maybe, in fact, not maybe. We, we made it a lot more about stuff and material things than it probably should be. But the story, the story of a baby boy being born, as John would say in this global cosmic perspective, it's the story of God coming to us, showing us what life looks like, and beating the darkness, defeating the things that had gone wrong with the world. I pray that, that when we open up this gift, as we do every year and, and hopefully every day, every morning, every night, that we respond like, like someone who, who is just overwhelmed. And we don't quite know what to do or what to make of it. But we, we praise Him. We obey Him. We follow Him. And then we have faith. And we stand in that faith. We stand in that trust. In the beginning was the Word. He came to us. He lived in front of us. And He's invited us to share in His victory. And so at Christmas we celebrate that. We celebrate that God did not stay far from us. But He came to us. One person said that, that Christmas is God's ultimate way of saying, you can't predict me. You can't predict me. And you can't hold, you can't fathom the love that I have for you. You can't. You can try to sit down and diagram it out. You can try to come up with an equation, but you can't do it because look at this baby boy. The Word in flesh. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. And I, I pray that as we wrap up and come to the close of the Christmas season, we would be just in awe of who you are and what you've done for us. That we would open up your gift, receive your gift, and follow you in faith and trust and love and worship. I pray that wherever we are this morning, you would meet us. And fill us up. You'd give us the strength and the energy we need for the journey ahead of us. You'd empower us and strengthen us. And most importantly, that you would reveal yourself to us. We love you. It's in your son's creating and revelatory and powerful and precious and saving name that we pray. Amen.